Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 31st, 2014, and my guest is Daphne Kohler, president and co-founder of Coursera, the online education platform. Daphne, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you very much. So I want to start with Coursera. It's a for-profit company that collaborates with nonprofit universities. Tell me how it works and uh, what its goals are. So our goal is to provide um, free education offered by our university partners to learners everywhere. Uh, We partner with the university. They're responsible for developing the content. Um, They put the courses up online on our platform. We host and stream them to learners worldwide. We have learners in every country around the world. And um, we help deliver the content, market it, and the hope is that we will be able to provide some revenue to help sustain the effort, which gets shared back to our university partners. And talk about, first, what the magnitude is of, of of your reach right now. So how many people typically are listening? How many from different countries? How many universities have you partnered with? So we currently have uh, 110 university partners from over 20 different countries. We have top universities not only from the United States, but also from countries like Switzerland, France, the UK, Germany, Singapore, China, Taiwan, Australia, Canada, Mexico, and many others. Uh, We have over 8 million learners worldwide, and uh, they are in every single country around the world. Um, We even found recently that we have learners from North Korea, which we hadn't. That's impressive. So what does Coursera provide in common across all the different course offerings? You say the universities take the course, they put it up in in the way that they choose to. Some people film it, some people use... um, you know, visuals with a voiceover, I assume. Everybody has a different style on their, on their courses. What's common to Coursera's offering besides the platform that people are, are, are using to, to access it? Uh, so first of all, um, I think that there is a certain commonality. Most people use video as the primary mechanism for the delivery of the content. Uh, we also very much encourage the delivery of very short video modules that are specifically designed for online consumption. Uh, we strongly discourage and have hardly any lecture capture from the back of the classroom. It just doesn't give a good online experience. The other commonality is that these are fully self-contained courses that not only have have the video content, but also meaningful exercises and assessments, uh, a community of learners that are helping each other um, in kind of a peer teaching type of model. And in the vast majority of our courses, there's also a form of credential that the students get at the end, which is not a credit-bearing credential in the sense that it doesn't lead to a degree, but is nevertheless something that a learner could potentially take to an employer and get some tangible benefit from. And that right now, that uh, certification is just that you took the course, completed the assignments, say, does it, is there a grade associated with some, all of these? Well, in order to get the certificate, you have not only to um, complete the assignments, you have to complete them to a certain level of uh, satisfaction uh, the, to a threshold that the instructor provides. So there is no grade per se, but there is a passing threshold. Okay. Now, 
the space of online education offerings, particularly at the university level, has gotten more crowded in the last few years. There's a lot of people trying to do what you're doing in different ways. Um, talk about where you fit in that space and who you see as your competitors. So first of all, we were the first in the space. Uh, what launched this whole thing were the original Stanford uh, MOOCs that were launched in September, October of 2011. A MOOC being a massive open online course, right? Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, and so we're not only the first, we were also the largest. Uh, so we're, I think, three to four times the size, I think, or even more of our closest, uh, the next closest platform in the space. Um, so, you know, there's a proliferation of different entrants in this space, as in any area that's really exciting. Um, I think one of the interesting phenomena that are happening recently is the proliferation of national platforms. There's a French platform, a Chinese one, UK, Australia, one in the Hispanic world, and so on and so forth. Um, I think that some countries are viewing it as a matter of national pride to sure. have their very own platform. Um, in addition to those, uh, two of the bigger um, platforms that have typically been associated with this uh, space are first uh, Udacity, which has since moved more into content that is primarily provided by companies and less so by universities. And so they've taken uh, a somewhat different trajectory. Uh, closer to us is edX, which is a joint effort of Harvard and MIT. Um, they've also recruited additional universities uh, worldwide. Um, they're more similar to us in the vision. There's, uh, however, significant differences in the platform and so on. And as I said, we're considerably larger. Uh, are you a threat to the university? No, most definitely So not. explain why not. So initially, a lot of the media coverage had it as, oh, you're going to put universities out of business. And what we're discovering is that our target audience by and large, are continuing education learners, people who um, either have completed their education or in the case of some developing countries, maybe never had access to education to begin with. They're now working adults and they're looking to make a better life for themselves, either by enhancing their career, in some cases, just by expanding their minds. Less than 15% of our learners are current uh, uh, learners in uh, existing undergraduate institutions, and they're mostly taking it as supplementary material akin to reading a textbook. Uh, I do believe that this will eventually transform higher education because it will, um, people will realize that the educational experience cannot be about the delivery of content because content is now ubiquitous. And so what I think we'll see is a move away from content delivery as the primary component of an educational experience and have it be more about skill building, uh, collaborative work on projects, and so on and so forth, which I think will give rise to much better learning outcomes. You mentioned uh, Udacity, and you know, Sebastian Throne launched Udacity with a great deal of fanfare and a great deal of resources and the early offerings, uh, some of them were quite spectacular and quite successful in the sense that a lot of people took those classes. And he got very demoralized by his experience uh, in trying to take that material into, into a university. Do you understand why? Uh, I don't fully. And, and as a result, as you said, he's shifted, they have shifted more toward corporate training and other, and other areas. I don't, I don't get it. What are your thoughts? 
So um, I think the one of the experiences that uh, caused Sebastian to shift away from the original trajectory was the experience that he had with San Jose State, where he tried to take some of the courses, uh, or at least the philosophy behind this type of teaching, and apply it to remedial classes. And the, I think the real struggle is that um, students in these remedial classes are ones for whom the educational system has largely failed. That is, they didn't develop in school and high school the study skills that they needed in order to succeed, which is why they're in a developmental track. And if you take those students and you just plonk them in front of a computer, I don't think it's a great recipe for success. And whereas I think the kind, there are other populations of learners that uh, this is a much more successful model for. So, so his discouragement was the fact that they didn't do very well in the tests and retention or whatever measures that were used, but I thought it's sure awfully early to be turning your back on this technology because of really one data point. I, I don't get it. Is there more to it than that that you think? I agree with you, and that's why we have not turned our <laughs> back on this technology. I think it's important to identify the right... There's, you're not going to find the silver bullet in education. Correct. There's not going to be a single technology that works well for all types of content in all populations. So I think that that particular instance was a mismatch between the technology and the kinds of learners at which it was aimed. I think those learners, and there's studies that prove that, benefit tremendously from more blended learning approach. And some of the other results, even in San Jose State, as well as a number of our partners, show significant improvements in learning outcomes when you do blended learning um, that involves both technology and some kind of face-to-face -face interaction. The technology that we're currently um, using in terms of the open access MOOCs, the ones that go direct to consumer, they work really well for a different type of population, and that's great. I mean, the other part that I find strange is people get discouraged by the uh, lack of the percentage of the students who finish the course. And I'm thinking, so what? So they only go two-thirds of the way through. Does it mean that they, quote, gave up? It could be they got what they wanted out of it. They were changed by it. So uh, do you have any sense of or feedback or measure of, of those kind of students who, quote, don't finish? So, I, so first of all, it's a very astute comment, uh, and in fact, it's important to realize that signing up the enrollment numbers for one of these courses is akin to putting a little X in the course catalog of your university saying, I might drop in on that class yeah. if I'm inclined. So half of the people who put that little X never even show up to the first lecture. Half of the ones that do realize after watching the first lecture that this isn't what they were looking for. They thought astrobiology was about UFOs, and it turns out that it's not. And so of the ones that after a couple of weeks of what you might call a shopping period in a college are declaring that they're committed to taking the class, the fraction of those that complete the class is about 63%. Is how much? 63%. Uh-huh, which is not bad. Which is not bad for yeah. an online course. Yeah. And if they furthermore, and remember, this is a free online course. They didn't put any skin right. in the game. Yeah. If they put a little bit of skin in the game and sign up for our verified certificate program, the so-called signature track, then the completion rates get close to 90%, 85%, 88%. So that's, and that's $50. It's not the same as, you know, paying for real tuition at a college, and nevertheless, we're getting these fairly impressive completion rates. So Khan Academy, which is a related but different, they tend to be focused on high schools and, and K-12 learning, but 
there's, they're in the same space. They're trying to make progress in this question of how do we teach people virtually and, and digitally. My understanding is they spend a lot of time trying to give feedback to teachers about how much time their students spend on the website. It's one way to monitor you know, for younger students whether they're actually doing the assignments. Mm-hmm. Are you, is Coursera and people in the, in the older space, the older age group space, doing anything like that? Are you learning anything about uh, engagement and those kind of variables? So we're definitely monitoring questions of engagement and thinking about what are the right ways to increase engagement, which I believe are likely to be different for a working adult of 35 versus a 12-year-old trying to learn, you know, multiplying decimals. So we're looking at that. And we have some ideas on how to develop that Uh, in the context of Adults, often a social structure is a really great way of increasing retention and engagement. So one of the efforts that we've made along those lines is our Learning Hubs project, which started out as a collaboration with the U.S. State Department and has since expanded to a bunch of other um, partners, including the New York Public Libraries, the Carlos Slim Philanthropic Foundation in Mexico. Um, so there's now dozens or maybe even hundreds of sites where students get together Physically. Um, physically, once a week to discuss the, the material, um, often under the, the facilitation of, of another person. And the completion rates, according to the data collected by the State Department, um, in those learning hubs is around 70% is typical and sometimes north of 90. So I think it's a very different um, type of audience. Um, and we need to find the right solution. Like I said, no silver bullet. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. Let, let's talk about some of the challenges of online education generally. And Arnold Kling was a, a guest uh, on these topics a while back, and he said something I thought was rather extraordinary. He said, uh, and he's, a, he's a, a PhD economist, but he also teaches high school, and he's very interested in education generally. And he, he said, education is feedback. And the way that students learn is they find out whether they're learning, and then they, they find out that they need to learn something else, or they're not really grabbing what they what they want. And I think as a as a university professor, that that education is feedback is not one of my strong suits. And when I was involved in the classroom, I tended to have the attitude, "Well, you figured out, you know, if you don't, that's up to you." And they didn't like they didn't students in my classes don't like the fact that they always didn't always know how they were doing. And I understand that, but Arnold says something more important, which is not just it's not just discomforting, it, it really changes the educational process. So how are how are you trying to give that feedback in this online setting where where professors can't see the faces of the students and repeat stuff, et cetera? So what's what's Coursera up to there? Well, I, I, first of all, I completely agree that getting feedback on whether you're learning or not is an absolutely essential component of successful learning for the vast majority of people. Um, and so that was something that we built into the platform from day one. For example, first by the introduction of auto-graded assessments so that you don't just submit or do the work blindly and then hope that you got it right. The computer Eventually, eventually you might get told by your professor that, yeah. Well, in this case, there is no professor who's checking your work because the kinds of scales that we're dealing with, you're not going to have someone grading the assignments of 100,000 students. And so if you wanted to give somebody any feedback, you had to do it using some other mechanism. And so the first one that we put in place is auto grading, where the computer checks your assignment and provides you with feedback on whether you're right or wrong. Um, 
Now, what turned out to be a nice thing about that is that not only was this a good scalability mechanism, it actually turned out to have pedagogical benefits because the fact that you're able to give someone immediate feedback and then also give them a chance to try again because the computer doesn't mind grading the same work twice, um, then you actually have the opportunity to really let people achieve mastery in one topic before you uh, move on to the next. And there's studies that date back to Benjamin Bloom, um, you know, uh, 30 years ago that really um, already demonstrate that mastery learning is a really valuable way of improving learning outcomes. So that's one source of feedback. The other source of feedback that we've built in um, to the experience is feedback from your peers, from other learners in the class. And that turns out to be incredibly valuable because first, it um, not only provides you with a scalable mechanism for feedback, it also creates a sense of community. So you feel like there's other people learning with you, which is really important. And then finally, and I think maybe even most importantly, or at least as importantly, is that the process of giving feedback to someone else on their work is an incredibly valuable learning experience. Yes. Learning how to critique someone teaches you what works well and what doesn't. And then you, um, in the peer grading mechanism that we put in place, you can go back and assess your own work using the same set of criteria and say, huh, I could have done that better. And so it's something that we're constantly told by our learners is perhaps one of the most interesting components of their learning experience is participating in that feedback process. Yeah, we talked in a recent episode about the technique uh, that I learned from Orson Scott Card of when you want to teach writing, you really want to teach editing. You want to teach students to critique each other, and then maybe they'll get good at editing their own work, which is what I think rewriting is the great un, uh, unappreciated skill of, of writing. Oh, fascinating. I, I hadn't seen It's genius. That. It's yeah, genius. I no, it's fabulous. It's great. And he would grade them. And I tried to do this in my class. He would grade their students, not on how well they wrote, but how well they critiqued. That's awesome. And so it forced, instead of just saying, oh, well, that was a nice paper, you, you, you found yourself working harder to give that feedback, which meant that you learned that process and could critique yourself. Um, let's talk, though, about the multiple choice issue and auto-grading, because I think one of the challenges is uh, I always... I didn't like multiple choice questions. They were easier to grade, obviously, but I would generally didn't use them when I was teaching, even in large classes, which meant the grading was very painful. But the challenge is you can write a good multiple choice question. It's not easy, but it can be done. And you can write a multiple choice question so that the student actually learns how well they understand the material as opposed to just mm -hmm. their ability to spit it back. But the question is, in your framework, you've got, hundreds of faculty around the country and maybe some around the world developing these courses, who's writing those exams, those feedback, those autograded experiences? So, Are you helping them? Because some of them, I'm sure, aren't doing it very well. So first, before I answer your actual question, let me just say that multiple choice is only one of several auto-graded types of assessments that we can provide. In addition, you can also use short answer questions uh, that can be auto-graded. Things that have a, a clear formatted output can be auto-graded, like the output of computer programs or computer models or Excel spreadsheets. Math can be auto-graded. So I think there is a lot of uh, other things beyond multiple choice. Meaning you can have an open-ended question and you can either get it right or wrong and have a shot at it again as opposed to just a choice of five answers. That's right. Um, that's exactly right, which is a better learning experience already. Although it's not, you know, you can't ask people to write an essay and have it auto-graded. That's why we're 
doing the peer grading. Um, so in terms of the, however, the question you actually asked, um, which is do we provide our instructors with help? So the answer is yes. Uh, we have a fairly extensive set of documents that we've put together on how to construct a good peer graded assessment, how to construct a good multiple choice question. Um, we have a set of partnership managers who work with instructors as they're putting the course together and um, help provide them feedback. But I think even more important, we work with the instructional design team at the different partner institutions and teach them the skills because that is, is a much more scalable way because they can then use what we teach them for multiple instructors at that institution. But that design team is domestic or yours? That design team is domestic. It's, right. at the, it's at the institution. And most of these top institutions have a center yeah. for teaching and learning or right. teaching excellence. Um, so that's one way that we provide them with in, input. The other way is because we have this amazing community of 110 top university partners from around the world, they also communicate with each other. We have a partners portal where people say, hey, look, I did something really cool with, um, for example, how to teach lab uh, a lab course online. And here's what I did. And then other people say, that's interesting. I could use that in my class. And so that's how we create a community of practice and innovation. Yeah, because that's obviously a lot of this is um, if people not, aren't careful, they can reinvent the wheel. And mm -hmm. we, should just, we should steal a lot of stuff here. It'd be good. Totally. Um, the, um, give me a feel for the logistics. So some of these are courses that are offered in real time and people are taking them. But a lot of them are sitting there right now. Anybody in the world can take them whenever they want, correct? Well, the second half is correct. Real time is a little bit of a... I didn't mean that. I, I meant, and I interviewed John Cochran, who taught a Coursera MOOC um, uh, in finance, and he had students taking it as part of his university class, and they were being graded. But at the same time, people were taking it mm -hmm. online around the world. That's right. But now I can take that class after the fact. True. Take the same quizzes, right? That's right. So give me a feel, if you're able to, for what some of the more popular classes would be, at least in terms of types of classes, mm -hmm. and what would be some of the numbers we're talking about here in terms of, and, and I assume it's a very um, long right-hand tail. I assume there's a there's a handful of classes that are unbelievably popular, and there's a lot of classes not so popular, but give me a feel for that. Sure. So um, it's actually challenging to characterize our most popular classes because they come from a variety of disciplines. So you might come in thinking that the most popular ones are going to be the ones in business and finance and so on. So if you think about our top three or four most popular classes, there's probably um, two philosophy classes, a psychology class, but also two, you know, one or two computer science classes and a couple of business classes. So that's sort of, if you look at that top 10 list, it comes from a range of different disciplines, which I think is really cool. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, the, there is indeed, as you said, a long tail. Um, the smaller of our classes are, have an initial, and oh, so I forgot to tell you. The largest of our classes have an enrollment initially of 180,000, 200,000. The largest we've had is a social psychology class from Wesleyan at 250,000. Now, it's important to remember this is initial enrollment and then not everyone shows yeah. up and so on and so yeah, forth. Yeah. Median for us is about 40,000, 30 to 40,000 for the median class. And then, as you said, there's a long tail of classes where the smallest goes down to 
you know, around 10,000 uh, for initial enrollment. Uh, but oftentimes those are very niche topics or in languages other than English and so appeal to a relatively smaller population. So what fascinates, I mean, those are amazing. Um, then must make you feel good when you go to bed at night because that's an extraordinary thing, right? So one of the issues we've talked about here before and I think about a lot and I talk to my wife about is a math teacher and my wife's an extraordinary math teacher. She's motivates, I'm biased, but um, obviously, but, she, but she's good at, at teaching math and good at motivating students and face-to-face is very powerful. We know that. But of course, then everybody gets, she gets to teach whatever it is, 50, 60 kids a year in a few classes the idea that a great teacher could teach 250,000 is really exhilarating. So what do you think the potential is for, say, the best calculus teacher uh, to teach the world, dominate the market, that everybody says, we don't have to offer calculus anymore at our school or high school or in our university because you can just get on Coursera and take the best one? So first, I think that thinking that there is the best one is uh, is an incorrect uh, perspective because what's best for me might not be what's best for you. Sure. I might prefer a different type of pedagogy or a different subset of material and so on. There's visual learners, there are people who like to listen, there are people who like to watch, sure, read. So I expect that there's... So there's three. There's three great calculus teachers. Maybe 15 um, or 20 uh, in the same way that there's more than three calculus textbooks. Correct. I think that, in fact, there's at least as much room for variability in the... Uh, online instruction as there is in textbooks because you Maybe don't more. style yeah. exactly even more. You can change it. You can make a module-based way to make it more even custom, more customized. Sure. And also the the style of presentation. I mean, text is text, but you know the style and how you present things and how you use visuals can be very very different. So, so fifteen, twenty, thirty different versions of this. But I agree, we don't need three thousand. Yeah, or more. We probably have even more than that, right? There's, there's, there's more than 3,000 people who should be doing something else than, instead of teaching calculus well, is what I'm thinking. So I think that's the question is whether um, the right thing to do is to just say the person, a student should just go online and just take the material entirely on, in that format or whether for a large majority of students, um, especially those who are younger and less formed in their thinking, the right thing to do is to have a blend where they get some of the content delivered online and then they come into class and the teacher actually teaches as opposed to delivers content. So puts them together in groups and says, let's solve the calculus problem together and I'll walk around and give you advice on how you're tackling this and, and, and whether you should be doing it in a different way. And so I think what we're likely to see is not the elimination of teachers, but rather a transformation of the teaching profession back to what it used to be. What did it used to be? Well, when people had the luxury of teaching a relatively small number of students in their class, uh, before colleges became the only path towards a better life, and we had to scale up on-campus teaching so that we have now we have to shovel 400 people into an auditorium, people were able to have that more one-on-one interaction with their students. We no longer have that luxury in most of our large state institutions and and even in some of the private ones. And so how do we um, provide a mechanism by which students can regain some of that experience as can teachers? So let's talk about the flipped classroom. And you're you're talking about blended. And I assume by blended you mean a mix of people watching video and then other times teachers delivering the material face-to-face. 
So the blended classroom gets a lot of love um, right now. The, the idea, of course, is you, you watch the video on your own, you come in and then you do the thing you're talking about where the teacher moves among typically groups. Uh, my wife's response to that, my wife's a skeptic. She's not antagonistic, but she's skeptical. And she says, you know, if you're really going to master mathematics, say, and this would be true of many things, you, you kind of have to work hard. You have to bear down. You have to focus. And you can't be sitting in a group of three or four people and where there's maybe a quiet person and there's a bully or an aggressive person and there's one person who takes charge. And I do think we have... We have a little bit of romance about group learning. I'm a big fan of it. I think in graduate school, my study groups were by far the way I learned most of my education and economics. Uh, is that going to work at the K through 12 level and, 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 and say in a big intro class? Uh, do, you, do you think we know anything about the effectiveness of these kind of approaches? So I think the data that's coming in is demonstrating good success rates for this type of blended learning format. Uh, I uh, am a big fan, for example, of some of the studies that have been done at um, University of Wisconsin-Madison, where they've been doing blended learning in their introductory engineering classes for about a decade and have pretty much perfected uh, what how they go about it. And um, are demonstrating very significant improvements in learning outcomes, especially for disadvantaged students who come in with less background and were in the failing population prior to the move to blended learning. Um, the results from the Joint Duke National University of Singapore uh, Medical School in Singapore are very similar. Um, they draw from a population that's much broader than the Duke Medical School campus does, people who haven't, uh, are often not pre-meds, and they teach them in this blended learning format using uh, content that they get from Duke University, and the students in those classes who come and do this kind of group work um, perform on their uh, board exams at the same level as the Duke students who come in from a much better background. So I think that there is a lot of data to support the validity of this model. That being said, it's not a one-size-fits-all. We've already said that. And if you're a learner who really needs to hunker down quietly and think things through for yourself, then maybe this isn't for you. But for those students, too, I would argue that even if you take the group work out and they do better by working in their own, they're still going to do better by watching the videos at their own time, at their own pace, with the ability to pause and think than they do by sitting in a lecture hall where they're certainly not interacting with anybody and the professor just moves on at a constant pace that may or may not be the right pace for them. Yeah. So until recently you were a, a faculty member at Stanford and uh, I'm sure you, like like the rest, like all of us with um, PhDs, went out and taught without any training in how to teach. Uh, that sometimes works out quite well, sometimes less so. But of course, at the K through 12 level, we have a, this thing called education school that a lot of people go through. And I happen to be a skeptic about the value of uh, educational theory and making great teachers. I think it has, could be helpful, often isn't. Uh, but what's clear to me is that we don't have a lot of training in the kind of skills that we're talking about right now. What you know, what are called I would call coaching, mentoring, exhorting, encouraging. The, the flipped classroom skills are not the same as the skills that you would typically learn in a formal education experience. Do you think that's going to change? Do you see any signs that this growth and enthusiasm for blended or flipped learning is going to change the way we train teachers? Because right now, I think probably most teachers are figuring it out for themselves as they go along. 
Well, so first, as you pointed like out... We, like we did. Exactly. <laughs> as you pointed out, that's exactly how we learn to teach, quote-unquote, is I remember when I showed up and, and I was at Stanford on my first day, and they said, and this is the class you're going to teach, and here's the pile of notes that your predecessor in this class has been using. Good luck to you. And yeah, there was a training was, experience. That was a training experience, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I actually have a lot of sympathy for the students who took my class the very first time. I can't imagine how horrible of an experience it must have been for them. So I'm hoping I got better over time. But uh, so I think that uh, clearly we need to train teachers better. And in higher ed, we need to train them, period, which is currently not happening at all. I do expect that um, as this form of education becomes more popular, um, we will start training at least the K-12 teachers who are the only ones that are currently receiving any kind of training in doing this. And again, I think that it just take, it's taking time for people to realize the benefits of this approach, but the data are starting to accumulate in ways that are hard to argue with. And so I think that, you know, just the system changes slowly. Well, and especially this one, which is rooted in cultural Stagnation, inertia, whatever you want to call it, political, regulatory stagnation and inertia. Let's talk about the potential for that to change. Um, what do you see as the potential for online learning to be truly disruptive? So right now, obviously it's in its infancy. Um, we have a number of high schools using video and virtual learning to help supplement or even replace regular classroom instruction as a way to save money and possibly to improve quality. A number of universities have farmed out their certain types of classes, calculus and other things to, to, the, to the digital world as a way of saving money. Uh, what do you think the potential is to really be transformative in terms of the K-12 through and the university world? So I'm going to start with maybe not the answer that you were looking for, which is I think the first big transformation is likely to come not here in the United States. Uh, and the reason is that here in the United States, we have a solution and we could argue that it could be improved, but it's hard to remove an entrenched solution and replace it with something else. In large parts of the world, there's these huge gaps in educational availability. And it's not like there is a satisfactory solution or even a semi-satisfactory solution. So I'll give you an example of a case in point. Um, India wants to increase its post-secondary completion rate from 13 to 30%, um, to put it in line with where OECD countries are. Um, in order to do that, they're going to have to build 1,500 academic institutions and train a million new instructors. Now, the point is, even in their current academic institutions, even in the very top ones, there's um, a lack of uh, instructors. There's not enough to cover the classes that are already there. So where are you going to get all those new ones? And so I think if you want to solve this problem within this generation or even the next one, you're going to have to find an alternative mechanism for delivery of education in a more scalable way. And so I think what we're going to see is that those other countries are going to leapfrog the United States in education in the same way that they've leapfrogged the United States in uh, cell phone coverage, 
in electronic banking, and in a whole variety of other places that they didn't have the infrastructure that provided them with the less than satisfactory solution. And they had more of a blank slate, and yeah. so they, they took what was off the shelf that turned out to be pretty good. And a bigger need than, yeah. than we currently have. But, but in the United States, which uh, we're in... Uh, what town are we? We're taping this in Coursera's headquarters, which are, we're located where? Mountain View. Mountain View. So we're very close to Palo Alto. Uh, I used to like to point out that Palo Alto often finished 99th in the 99th percentile in the state of California on high school exams. And East Palo Alto, which was separated from Palo Alto by the 101 highway, would often be in the first percentile. Someone had to be in the first. Hard to, hard to realize that sometimes, but there is a worst uh, school system. So that's a pretty big gap. And when I would argue for reform, people would say, well, you know, such as vouchers or getting rid of public schools, they say, well, that would enhance the rich. And I'd say, well, it's hard to make it bigger than 99 to 1. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that gap here in the United States and what online education might do to make that a little bit uh, smaller? Well, I think that the hope is that by providing the resources of really spectacular instructors, you could improve the outcomes for those students who are in, in the, that first percentile. Um, I think it's important, however, to be watchful for uh, overzealous politicians who are going to view this primarily as technology for decreasing costs as opposed to technology for improving outcomes. I have nothing against decreasing costs. I think we can do a, a better job of educating people at a lower cost today. But I think especially for that first percentile or, you know, that lower quartile, um, it's important to view this as a way of enhancing outcomes. And so you shouldn't just say, oh, well, we're, we're going to take the teachers out of the classroom and just send them all to the online world. But rather, let's do that blended learning. It's not going to decrease costs, but hopefully it will allow people to perform better, as we saw in the Madison example, for instance. So in 2025... 10, 11 years from now, what do you think the landscape of high school education will look like as and university education will look like it looks now with a little bit more online, a op, few more online options, or do you think it'll be radically different? I think in a decade we're going to see radical differences, maybe not everywhere, maybe not in every discipline. Uh, but, for example, I think that universities, for instance, that are currently building large lecture halls, um, their presidents ought to think differently about how to invest their resources because I don't think we're going to be seeing a huge demand for large lecture teaching, except for the occasional, you know, inspirational yeah, lecture. Sure. Um, I think we're going to see a significant use of online resources and, and having the classroom be much more about interactive activities, as well as the development of the softer skills that are so important. Are some uh, universities or a significant number going to be gone? Because they're not providing, it can't compete with this with the options of a of a great university that's extended its reach via technology. I think that's a good question. I think that universities, some universities, will undoubtedly disappear. I would say those are primarily the ones that are unwilling to see the future and unwilling to adapt. There's some universities that are taking the so-called ostrich strategy, which is I'm going to close my eyes really tightly and hope that this all goes away. And you know how well that worked for journalism. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. That worked great for newspapers, yeah. Yeah. So I think those will disappear. 
Others, I think, could find a value add in terms of, for example, that blended learning experience or the social structure that surrounds the educational experience, connecting students to alumni, to local internship opportunities, um, to volunteering opportunities abroad, whatever. You can imagine universities that really just um, focus their mission more on those other skills, which we know are so critical to success in the modern world. Um, and so I think those universities will do fine. Now, we have a lot of romance about, about university education yeah. in, in, in the Western world. And part of the romance is that you're going off and you go off to college to hang out with great minds. And you find out that you're in a room with 500 other people and you don't get to hang out much. And the office hours are short and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I'm wondering how much people are going to want to go hang out with great coaches, right? A, a lot of the appeal of a first-rate university is... It's, again, somewhat misplaced at times. You don't always get the best teachers, and sometimes they don't teach much. But in theory, you're, you're mingling and, and having intellectual interaction with great minds. If you can do that online, is there going to be any purpose to having a university other than the few that are actually providing the content? Well, so first of all, let me point out that that romantic ideal of those students on the green grass lawns uh, hanging out. I, I see togas. Lawns. The togas are either on the faculty or the students. I'm not sure which, but yeah. Uh, let me point out that <laughs> the number of students who have that experience is a tiny handful. So um, I think the numbers that I heard was that 85% of students are actually in commuter colleges. Um, most of them are non-traditional learners who are not even in the 18 to 25-year-old range. And so they're not getting that experience even today. Um, and so, um, so that's one part to remember. Now, I do believe that they are going to those educational institutions because... Not necessarily because they get to hang out with the great minds. Not all of those instructors are great minds, but there is a value to the sort of interaction that they get with their other, with their other classmates, um, the ability to go and ask questions of the professor, and even just the fact that someone's looking you in the eye and saying, they didn't do your homework. So I do think that there is going to be value to that, especially at the undergraduate level. I think the there's a bigger question of what we're going to see in terms of the transformation of education at the graduate level. Um, because those are often mature people, often ones who already have a job. Well, we were older. I'm not sure mature is the right word, but I, I, but I, I know what you meant. Well, I, mean, I, I want to, you can speak for yourself. Um, they, and for them to take two years off and come and get a master's degree is, is very Nuts. challenging. Yeah. And I think we're going to see a big transformation in the graduate space with um, people taking education in smaller units that are more just in time. So I need to learn a new skill um, that might require a three-course sequence, but not a full two years worth of master's degree. And for that three-course sequence, I'd much rather do it in evenings and weekends and still maintain my full-time job in my apartment and, and you know, be with my family. So let's take that, uh, let's look again into the future. It not it possible, if not likely, that instead of going out to get an MBA, I'm going to take the best finance class from this university, the best marketing class from that university, and disaggregate the degree, just the way I disaggregate my newspaper. I don't read one newspaper. I read the, my favorite parts of 25 different websites. Won't I be doing that, showing my, my mastery through some sort of assessment, and doing it while I'm 
uh, keeping a stand on my job so I can keep the cost down? So having known a good number of people who have gone through an MBA, uh, I can tell you that the actual content that's being delivered as part of the MBA is a relatively small component of what people are getting. Yeah, I, mean, I shouldn't say that, but yeah, I think that's true. And I think the best MBA programs recognize that and they build the softer skills, they build the networking opportunities, the, both internally within the class as well as with you know people um, who are alumni or otherwise associated with the institution. So I think people will still find significant value in those institutions because learning is a social experience, unlike reading a new newspaper. And in the same way, I think it's actually interesting to think of a different analogy, which is that of the music industry. You could have said, you can get a song on iTunes now for 99 cents. That's going to put live concerts out of business. Why would somebody drive an hour, stand in line, and then sit in this large space and pay a hundred bucks to see the singer from the 50th row? And nevertheless, live concerts are on the upswing. Yeah. So I think we're going to actually see, if anything, an increase in enrollments, at least at the better universities. So uh, in your previous life, you were uh, had a very interesting life. You were a professor of computer science, and you were also in the pathology department, mm -hmm. which is uh, fascinating. And you uh, helped develop or developed a, a thing called uh, CPATH, computational pathology pathologist. And I want we're gonna. This isn't just a change of, of pace here, but I, I want you to talk a little bit about what that did because that what that does, which is rather extraordinary. Talk about that, and then we'll come back to. Okay. Um, so I, my expertise as a computer scientist was in the area of machine learning and big data. And one of the things that always drew me was applying those ideas to um, understanding human biology and human health. The CPATH uh, approach was effectively a way of applying machine learning techniques to do what I call data-driven medicine. So um, so I'm going to digress for a moment and say that the first time that I heard the word um, uh, evidence-based medicine, I was actually rather shocked, not because I hadn't realized that there was any other kind of yeah, medicine. I, sure. And the fact that this was the exception rather than the rule was rather an unpleasant surprise to me. Um, Data-driven medicine, you can think of it as the next step beyond evidence-based because not only are we using the evidence of a particular hypothesis that somebody tested to assigned treatment, we're actually letting the data speak for themselves. So we're not coming in with a preconceived hypothesis. Rather, we're taking a lot of data, in this case, pathology images from cancer patients, putting in a lot of different ways of looking at those images, like you know, how many cells there are in this region and how are the nuclei shaped and a whole bunch of features which may or may not be in any way relevant to cancer, we don't know, and then letting the data tell us which are the ones that really are relevant to prognosis, for example, and which are the ones that are not. And so one of the things that we uncovered by doing this in a completely unbiased way that didn't come in with preconceptions is that if you look specifically at breast cancer tumors, um, it turns out that characteristics features, as I call them, of the tissue that surrounds the cancer cells are actually more predictive of prognosis than the features of the cancer cells themselves. So there's something about the ecosystem of the cancer cells that is really important to how aggressive the cancer is and how quickly it develops. And it was being ignored by the, patho the human pathologists who were examining the, the 
the tissue and the results. Yeah, and, and the reason why we, what inspired us to look at this uh, question was that the way in which uh, cancer is graded using pathology images um, hasn't really changed for about a hundred years. Um, and, yeah. and is the question, and my, the question that we asked was, is that because the three characteristics that were being assessed by pathologists are just they happen to nail it the first time? Or are there other things that we just never thought to look at? And it turned out that the latter was the case. The other part of your work that really fascinates me is, is it can help answer the question that I think every uh, patient wants to know, which is, okay, I can take this treatment, which is really unpleasant, or I can take this treatment, which is less unpleasant, or I can do nothing. And people often say, well, so what are the odds that it's going to work? And we, most doctors are very uncomfortable, in my experience, answering that question. And then you're tempted to say, well, what's the evidence? And the answer is they don't have any clue, no. right? Some of that's legitimate because treatment is person-specific and may, may be very misleading to talk about an average in the case of an actual person. But that would be useful information for most people. Talk about what machine learning can contribute to that question. So to me, this is an incredibly exciting direction. And one of the things that I regret about having come here to Coursera is the fact that I'm no longer working on that because I think it's really important. Um, we're at a tipping point in the world of medicine because of the digitization of a lot of the health information about many, many patients. And so we're now at the point where we can start saying, Here's a thousand patients or 10,000 patients who have all received a certain treatment. And here's the things that characterize those patients, things both at the you know, imaging level, um, genomic data, uh, various other uh, characteristics like symptoms, medical histories, and so on. Let's take all of these features, not come in with any preconceptions, again, about which of those are likely to be predictive of the success of a particular treatment, throw it all into a machine learning algorithm and see what we think the odds are of treatment X working for a patient with these characteristics versus treatment Y. And you're absolutely right that this is very personalized, but by putting in a lot of information about each particular patient, we're getting pretty close uh, or much closer to being able to make the predictions that are right for you. So one of, one of the things people worry about, of course, is that, oh, this is good for people with cancer, and I think they count a lot more, but I just want to say that it's not so good for pathologists. So some people worry that, you know, smart machines are going to just eliminate most of the jobs that we already do. You worry about that? Do you think about it at all? Your colleagues who are in this area, do they ever talk about it? I'm not worried about it so much, but I know people are. You know, I think it's uh, impossible and foolish to try and stop the progress of technology so as to save people's jobs when machines can actually do those jobs better. What I think will happen to pathologists is they will move up the food chain in the same way that we've seen other professions move up the food chain. Well, I think teachers will move up the food chain. So um, I think that's the right thing to have happen is to, re is to transform professions rather than trying keep them unchanged just because we don't want people to, you know, have to transform their jobs. Yeah, those blacksmith jobs are really, they're lost. and Not to mention the people who shoot horses. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah they're gone. And I, it's a good thing, uh, mostly. Uh, so what I was going to ask you, which you already kind of answered, but I'll let you talk a little bit more about it, is that uh, that's an incredibly exciting 
field, obviously, the opportunity to apply machine learning to medical outcomes. And I think you seem to agree that we're on the cusp of a real revolution there that'll be really transformative. And so I'm asking, how hard is it to walk away from that? You've, you're doing something radically different. Mm-hmm. It's exciting in its own way, but uh, talk about what it's like to be an, you're an entrepreneur now, too. You're not just a, a faculty member who's come up with something useful. That's unusual enough to start with, but one who's an entrepreneur's running a company is is even more unusual. Talk about what it's like. Um, it was uh, a wrenching decision to stop doing that and do this instead. It um, was not something that I took lightly. But I think the thing that really drew me to Coursera and to what I'm doing now is the combination of the magnitude and the immediacy of the impact that we're having. I mean, I could have continued to work on personalized medicine and, you know, optimistically, we would have been able to, you know, extend the work that we did to other types of treatment and then we would have been able to maybe license it to a a large pharmaceutical company or, or something and after additional FDA trials and so on and so forth, in maybe five to eight years, uh, we would have been able to be in a position to affect where the technology has affected uh, patient outcomes or but patient it, treatment. But in only three years, you could have a journal article. <laughs> in only three years? In only three, it, only take, it might take five or eight years to get that FDA things there, but in three years, you get the excitement of a, of a journal, a publication. Exactly. So that's and still that's three, three years. years. I know. And here we have touched the lives of millions of learners in a matter of a year or two, and that number is only increasing um, more and more rapidly. So it was just, you know, there's unfortunately life is about choices and trade-offs, and it's economics. And to be in a fortunate position where I had two such exciting directions that I could pursue, and making a decision is hard, and I made the decision that I felt would give me the biggest opportunity to make an impact in the world. When we were starting Coursera back in the, or making the decision to start Coursera back in the late fall of 2011 is when Steve Jobs passed away. And one of his favorite quotes that was repeated often at that time is that uh, your goal in life should be to make a dent in the universe. And this is, this is my dent. Yeah, it's, that's really beautiful. Um, so there's a temptation to think as an outsider that, and of course, Sarah kind of runs itself. There's a platform and there are all these teams around the country helping professors prepare their lectures and get them up on the lo- online. And, and to some extent, Coursera is uh, like many of these extraordinary, uh, I think, websites and, and, and efforts that are going on now. They're matchmakers. You're, you're taking great teachers, just like Uber takes people who have some extra time and, and a car that's not being used and finds somebody who's lonely on a street corner um, Airbnb is taking people who want to stay somewhere nice and there aren't any good rooms left. You're taking teachers who are great at what they do and you're finding really hungry people to be fed with their knowledge. It's a beautiful thing. It's called so, a two-sided market. Right. So what do you do all day um, <laughs> as the president uh, besides applaud and, and watch the numbers grow? And what kind of, and you can't talk about your, some of your strategic ideas, but what, what's happening here in this building uh, it's a pretty large building. I, you know, I'm not, I don't know how big it is. I don't know how many people work here. What is Coursera itself doing other than creating this format that's already out there now for people to mm-hmm. match with each other? So there's a number of things that we do as an organization. Uh, maybe the most 
obviously visible one is the building of the platform that makes this all possible. Uh, it's not an easy task to construct such an artifact, and it's one that we constantly have ideas on how to improve in terms of increasing the scale, increasing the reach into parts of the world, um, using mobile, for example, using um, a translated interface, uh, making the experience much better for learners, experience better for teachers. So we have a large engineering and design team that really works extensively on that. Um, a second very large team in the organization is our partnerships team, and that's the one that works university-facing to first um, talk with them about what content would best be uh, provided in this format to the kinds of learners that we have, um, helping them think about how to design their classes and how to deliver them effectively and so on. So you can think of it as a combination of you know, partnership management as well as some pedagogy and, and so on. Um, we have a community operations team that works uh, mostly facing the learners, although to some extent also the instructors in helping them navigate difficulties in the platform, basically pro provide a support um, task. Um, and then we also have other, we also have a business development team, for example, that uh, works, for example, with companies to, uh, to provide additional value to the learners who emerge from our courses. So, for example, we're very proud of the relationship that we have with um, Google Play around the Android uh, specialization that has recently launched. Specialization is a multi-core sequence with a project at the end. And they basically said, um, we will take the five top courses, the five top projects, sorry, in that project and highlight them on the Google Play Store, which is the dream of any that's app lovely. developer. Yeah, that's lovely. And so those are relationships that one has to, you know, nurture form. and nurture. And that's, so that's another thing that we're doing. So, you know, we think about the, the real barriers, we're almost out of time, but the real barriers to, to me, when I think about it for the, getting to the next level, the two are assessment uh, in a way that could be uh, anonymous, excuse me, um, not anonymous, the opposite. It can be tied to a person that I can take an exam. I'm sitting in India. Uh, India can't provide all those schools and all those teachers. And so, there's a child in India learning something, and we want to make sure that child takes the test that, that they said they did. It wasn't taken by their, their buddy over the shoulder. So that that's one issue we have. And the other issue, of course, is the socialization part, the community part. Mm -hmm. And there, there, there are really two levels of that. One is how do you learn from people who are spread around the world, uh, and, and you want to interact with them. And I don't think we've done a very good job solving either of those problems yet. So talk about whether you agree with that, if you're as, as negative as I am. Uh, I think we haven't quite solved that. And whether you think we're going to make some serious progress on those two issues? So actually, I'm not as negative about either of those as you might expect. <laughs> um, on the identity verification problem, we have a technology that combines keystroke verification with webcam verification so that we compare your your image as you're taking, as you're doing the assessments to um, uh, to your photo ID that you submitted, and we can tell that it's you at the keyboard, and we can also use your keystrokes to confirm that you're that you're you, and that also helps. How accurate is that keystroke? Are you talking about the pressure I put on the keys? No, the the spacing between the the. It turns out that if you and I type the same phrase, the rhythm, the difference between the keystrokes is very different, and mm. it's uh, impossible for me to teach you 
had a type like me. Uh-huh. It's not as unique as a fingerprint in the sense that there's probably, you know, maybe, I don't know, one in a thousand people who would type in a way that is hard to discern from you, but go find one and convince them to take the class <laughs> instead of you. And then when you combine that with a webcam so they also have to look like you, it becomes a little bit more challenging, right? So that's, you know, it's not perfect because, because somebody can still be sitting next to you and giving you the answers, but that's true when you do homework as well. Sure. Um, so that's one answer. So it's not a full solution, but I think it's a good start. Um, on the socialization, I think you and I come from a different generation than many or most of our learners. For sure. You and I were, did not grow up in a world where social interaction was something that was consumed by digital media. Whereas now, uh, you know, I have two kids who prefer to sit in different rooms and G-chat each other than, um, than they do to sit next to each other and chat. So I think that we're in a world that's different now where people are used to a social milieu that is online in a, in, primarily. And so I think we can get that socialization happening in an electronic format. Um, is it a complete substitute to face-to-face? No, of course not. But that's where we have study groups and learning hubs and all those other things that will help enhance the experience. Last question. Um, where do we, what would be a decisive measure of success for you? Obviously, we're, as we've said, we're kind of in the beginning phase. It's always very satisfying. You see your numbers climbing all the time, and competitors can come along and surprise you, but it, that's going to happen, I think, for a while that you're going to continue to grow, and that'll be very satisfying. Is there some landmark or, or milestone that you think we're going to cross that you would find particularly important or satisfying as a, as a part of this, this revolution in education? Well, um, I think as a society, we take big leaps when things that used to be viewed as privileges are turned to the point that they are viewed as a right. So the right to vote, the right to free speech, the right to marriage is currently something that's being, you know, decided right now. You can clearly see the societal shift on that one. Um, I think the right to education, which has already uh, been recognized as a right in the primary and secondary space, where it's viewed as a travesty if you don't give somebody the right to learn how to read and write and learn those basic skills. I think the right to education will be something that emerges as a result of this transformation. Because when you can provide it at what is effectively for free, not providing it will seem like a moral travesty. And so to me, the big success will be when the right to education at all levels as part of the fabric of one's life becomes something that's recognized as part of the societal mores. My guest today has been Daphne Kohler. Daphne, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.